Hi everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Niklas Savos, and next to me is my friend and colleague, Eddie Palmgren. How are you? I'm great. It's pouring rain outside. It's Friday evening here in Sweden and I'm excited to speak to Gautam Baide. How did we first get in contact with him? We actually interviewed Gautam for the Investing by the Books website back in 2019 and are big fans of his book, The Joys of Compounding. We have tried to arrange this episode for more than a year now and and had a plan to actually meet Gautam in Omaha for the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. But uh, it's a busy weekend and uh, we couldn't manage to find a time. But actually on the last day when we sat at the Markel branch, I looked back from my seat and to my great surprise saw that uh, Gautam was sitting just behind me. So we exchanged exchanged a few words there, which was great, and and, uh, managed to arrange this. Serendipity. Yeah. At its best. And uh, for our listeners not familiar with Gautam, what's uh, his background? Yeah, Gautam has a fascinating background. He is originally from India and is now living in the US where he moved in 2015 to follow his dream of becoming a professional money manager. And at the time he had worked for seven years as an investment banking analyst at uh, Citibank and Deutsche Bank in Mumbai, London and Hong Kong. But despite this background, it proved extremely challenging to find a relevant job in the US. So Gautam instead worked as a front desk clerk at a hotel in San Francisco. And that was the job he found. And uh, there he earned a minimum wage. But he was reading constantly about investing and related topics. And after 15 months at the hotel and 1,300 job applications, he landed a position as a portfolio manager at Summit Global Investments in Salt Lake City, Utah. And after five years there at Summit Global Investments, Gautam is now starting his own fund, Stellar Wealth Partners India Fund. And Gautam is also the author of the international best-selling title, The Joys of Compounding, which he first self-published in 2018 before uh, Columbia University Press discovered it. And that was actually in, uh, in Omaha. And then they offered him a publishing contract. And why have we chosen The Joys of Compounding? Yeah, the book's uh, subtitle is The Passionate Pursuit of Lifelong Learning. And this, to me, this is exactly what we want to inspire you listeners with in this podcast. We want to learn about investing. We also want to learn about how to be healthy, how to take better decisions and enjoy life. So to do that, a suggestion is to follow the main concept in Gautam's book, and that is to be really long-term minded in everything you do and thereby enjoy the powerful force of compounding. Yeah, it really is a deep lesson. And and more specifically, what does the book uh, include? The book is divided into five sections. The first one is achieving worldly wisdom. The second one is building strong character. Then he writes about common stock investing, portfolio management, and lastly, decision making. And each of these five sections has three to ten chapters, and in total the book has 31 chapters. So what Gautam has done is basically to compile everything useful he has read, and that is really a lot. So I think for aspiring investors, the book is a great starting point, and it serves like a dictionary. And for more seasoned investors, it's really a healthy refresher with many classic quotes as well as inspirational stories from Gautam's personal experiences. And how does the book relate to our quality rating at Red Eye? And as you said, it's a really comprehensive book. So it covers a lot of these uh, topics that we include in, in our quality checklist. And um, I think um, especially chapter 13 titled Investing Between the Lines about interpreting CEO letters and chapter 14, the significant role of checklists in decision making for, with, for example, a, a list of red flags for detecting poor management are, 
are uh, interesting and, and quite connected to the checklist it, itself. We are delighted to have the author of The Joys of Compounding on the show. Here comes our conversation with Gautam Bide. Gautam, welcome to Investing by the Books podcast and thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me here. Where are you today? I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah. So let's uh, begin uh, to dig deeper into your masterpiece, uh, The Joys of Compounding. Uh, first of all, why did you want to write The Joys of Compounding? So my life epitomizes Isaac Newton's saying, if I've seen further, it is by standing upon the shoulders of giants. The Joys of Compounding is my heartfelt tribute to all my teachers who helped me achieve financial independence, become a better and wiser person, and embark on the path to a fulfilling and meaningful life. And writing about and sharing my life's biggest learnings was my way of giving back to the investing community from whom I've gotten to learn so much over the years. And our goodwill compounds when we share with others and we should act as a funnel of knowledge, not a sponge. As Charlie Munger so beautifully put it, the best thing a human being can do is to help another human being no more. And in life, the winners also lose occasionally, but those who help others win can never lose. So always help others rise. This is how goodwill compounds over time. In the first chapter of the book, I state that today after having successfully achieved financial freedom through my passionate pursuit of lifelong learning, I can happily say that I'm a better investor because I'm a lifelong learner and I'm a better lifelong learner because I'm an investor. The principles emphasized throughout the book power the lifelong compounding journey of a value investor. At the same time, the learnings are not restricted to only about investing and this is because compounding does not apply only to money. Social and intellectual capital also compound. Investing in yourself, in your relationships, and in your understanding of the world pays massive dividends over time. And this, in essence, is the core message of the book, that the best investment you can make is an investment in yourself. All the great things in life come from compounding. And that is why I've written about compounding positive thoughts, compounding good habits, compounding good health, compounding knowledge, compounding wealth, and compounding goodwill in the book. And if you go back a bit to the to the start, what really sparked your interest in, in compounding to, to write about it? Well, it's uh, basically a reflection of my personal life experiences. Even in my personal life, there have been many instances where uh, the, the times were pretty tough and I just wanted to give up, but I did not give up and I just kept on going. And I think persistence and resilience are superpowers. If you just keep at it, just keeping one feet in front, in front of the other every single day and just keep moving forward, eventually great things happen. That is what actually all great outcomes are at the end of the day. It's just consistent dog determined efforts compounded over a long period of time. That's what compounding is all about. And it's clear that compounding is really a powerful force, which makes me think what happens if I would have that strong force working against me? So when can compounding be dangerous? So in essence, you make your choices and then your choices make you. And every decision, no matter how slight, alters the trajectory of your life. And every choice's compound effect is in action all the time. Warren Buffett often says that the chains of habit are too light to be felt until they are too heavy to be broken. We all are slaves of habits and once a habit becomes ingrained, it can last for life. So inculcate good habits. Most bad habits creep in slowly. So be careful of making small compromises. The adverse, although subtle effects of such actions compound over time and a single poor habit, which doesn't look like much in the moment, ultimately can land you 
miles off course from the direction of your goals and the life you desire and the real question isn't who am i the real question is who am i becoming we all are constantly evolving but the person you will be in the next 5 to 10 years is feeding on the habits and decisions you will make today so this is how compounding can work in reverse as well if you inculcate bad habits do you have an example where you have changed your behavior in in such a way so one good uh, positive change which i made uh, in my research habits is just to keep the mobile phone outside my room i switch it off during my research time and i just try to minimize distractions to the maximum extent possible the i know as investors the two things which are in our control is our research process and our personal behavior these are the only two things which we can control there is nothing else so i think uh, we should focus on the variables that we can control rather than obsessing or worrying too much about the things which are outside our control so having this mindset is greatly helpful so moving on to investing why do you think the value investing philosophy has endured over decades now almost 100 years what makes it uh, evergreen the principle of buying something for less than what it is worth will never get old right and phil fisher had rightly said the stock market is filled with individuals who know the price of everything but the value of nothing stock price is known to every everyone in the market but value is understood by only a select few and stock prices randomly fluctuate every day sometimes wildly on either side but the underlying business value changes very slowly and therein lies the big opportunity for us as value investors focusing on what is moving is part of our evolutionary instincts and this explains why market participants focus more on the volatile stock prices which keep bobbing up and down every day then on business values which change quite slowly and capitalizing on others desire to avoid volatility is what makes value investing work as joel greenblatt aptly put it value investing works but value investing does not work all of the time and that is where value investing works and something that is very valuable and something that you touched upon in the beginning here that has been very important for you is financial independence and in the book you write that we should all aim to achieve financial independence at the earliest time and that that is when you will start seeing the world as it really is so when did you first regard yourself as financially independent and how has this changed your life so uh, i would define financial independence when your passive income from dividends interest income rental income from real estate is enough to cover your family's annual living expenses that is when i regarded myself as financially independent and how it has changed my life the single biggest thing it has done is financial independence has given me control over my time and the only definition of success is to be able to spend your life in your own way and as we as we all know that uh, our life today is a result of our past choices hard choices easy life easy choices hard life and i sacrificed a major portion of my personal and social life for the better part of my 30s but it has been well worth it and trust me not having to wake up to an alarm clock anymore is one of the biggest luxuries which life can give you trust me when you don't have to follow a routine a predetermined schedule every single day you can actually start living life the way you want to live it i hope that i hope that you didn't need the alarm today either <laughs> <laughs> yeah and something i have been thinking about is just that Okay maybe you are financially independent at this moment but then you never know what will happen maybe you will have some some damage happening or someone in your family gets sick and you need money for that or your life circumstances change in any way how do you think about that how how big a margin of a safety do you want 
for that also i've written in my book as well that uh, initially have a emergency reserve or a contingency fund of 2 years of living expenses and then gradually increase it to 5 years of living ex- expenses as you increase your exposure to equities over time so i think having 5 years of living annual living expenses in an emergency fund or a contingency reserve is sufficiently good enough so gautam tell us about your investing journey how has it evolved over the years and and what core sets of ideas did you start off with and what ideas have you added to your investing mindset as you starting learning new things so my personal investment opportunity set has significantly expanded over the years with time and experience in the markets initially i started off by reading benjamin graham so i started off by investing in low price to earning low price to book stocks then i read about phil fisher warren buffett and charlie munger and i started investing in quality businesses at reasonable valuations but today it covers multiple areas of the investment universe including promoter and management change merger arbitrage spin offs turnarounds deep value cyclicals instead of being restricted by my personal biased views to a small opportunity set as was the case during my early years i am now able to invest in a variety of industries and situations wherever i find mispricing of value and a highly favorable risk and return trade off you see no single strategy works all of the time and in every kind of market and that is why it is essential to build up one's investing arsenal to be able to hunt for value from within different areas and over the years i've come to realize and appreciate just why this is so critically important it is because a bull market is always going on at all points of time in some specific sectors of the stock market for instance even during the 2009 to 2013 bear market in india consumer discretionary pharmaceuticals and information technology companies created a lot of wealth for investors so always keep your uh, uh, eyes and ears open for spotting the new trends which always emerge during the fag end of a bear market yeah, and that's something we discuss a lot like how much should you change your philosophy because of the changing environment and how much should you just stay focused on your investment style what are your thoughts on that the investment style has broadly remained the same i think over the last 15 years of investing the only one single investing style which i've seen works across all market environments is growth at a reasonable price the other forms of investing like deep value or investing in high revenue growth unprofitable companies these kind of trends come and go out of fashion but growth at a reasonable price is the only investment philosophy which works across all market and macro environments and that is the philosophy i'm most comfortable with So basically you're just changing sector or theme or how 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 do you think about it? Right. This the sectors may keep on changing but the underlying philosophy of buying growth at a reasonable price that underlying philosophy remains the same. The sectors will obviously change because uh, when any sector undergoes you know 4 5 years of a slowdown or a downturn then you end up buying you can buy those uh, uh, companies in those sectors at a very cheap valuation. So the principle remains the same but the sectors obviously change yeah that makes sense i think but it's also challenging because then you need to broaden your circle of competence all the time it does it does and that is what uh, i talked about in the book as if you, if you know this if you see the subtitle it is this passionate pursuit of lifelong learning so the idea is to keep learning keep evolving keep growing over time because different sectors different industries will be in favor at different points of time Uh, during the course of your journey as an investor so very very important to keep learning i mean even warren buffett at the late stage of his career he invested in a technology company apple and he made the largest amount of money in that particular single technology stock even after avoiding technology for the better part of his investing journey so 
if uh, he is doing it at such an old age we can definitely uh, do it ourselves as well the the key thing to take away from buffett is this constant learning attitude and that is i think one of the best learnings from him and a question on how you use this practically because in the book you write that you have never opened a spreadsheet even once when making an investment decision so how are you using how are you doing your investment decisions relying solely on co- complex quantitative analysis can divert our attention away from the things that really matter for example spreadsheets cannot model trust integrity goodwill reputation or the execution capabilities of the management thus due diligence always needs to have a softer subjective side to it and investing is part art and part science nuanced judgment is required and when it comes to investing precision has much as much less practical application than an investor would think this tendency to look for precision where none exists is a human bias and is referred to by munger as physics envy and over the years i've come to appreciate the fact that investing is a field of simplifications and approximations rather than of extreme precision and quantitative wizardry i also have realized that investing is less a field of finance and more a field of human behavior and the key to investing success is not how much you know but how you behave this is the key to successful investing and in that pursuit of lifelong learning what what tools do you use you mentioned for example uh, buying a journal as your your best value investment ever yes, so i spent the 10 dollars on purchasing a journal in late 2014 and i consider it to be one of the best value investments i have ever made since that day i have been keeping track of my investing decisions and subsequent developments in a journal and this has helped me a lot in learning about my thinking process at the time of making my past decisions I receive a lot of valuable feedback and use it to correct my biases. I also have maintained a personal archive of the media commentary and investor behavior during various episodes of market panic from early 2015 till date and I find it highly beneficial to refer to it whenever the market undergoes its periodic steep corrections like we saw in the last 6 to 8 months because human behavior in the markets has never really changed much over time. at the time of purchase or sale of any stock in my portfolio i note down the rationale for doing so because the pro- the process of structuring our thoughts into a journal entry brings clarity to our thinking and journaling by hand reduces the possibility of hindsight bias it is very hard to look at your own writing and deny your previous thoughts and a, pre- a periodic review is an important part of the process this is how you start getting better realizing where you make mistakes why you make them and what the common mistakes are that you tend to make all can help you improve over time and whenever the outcome of a past decision is known revisit your decision journal the odds are you will discover some surprises in many of the favorable outcomes you will commonly find that the original reasoning wasn't right and outcomes distort our thinking a lot and unless you are humble and intellectually honest you will end up taking the wrong lessons from favorable outcomes it is not intuitive to honestly recall how the events unfolded especially after getting a favorable result and we may we may be right a lot of the time but it may well be for the wrong reasons and this self realization can be humbling it is also how we learn and improve over time so that's the importance of maintaining a journal and do you have any recommendation you said that you review your past decisions but with all the volatility in the markets it's it's sometimes you you need quite a lot of lot of time to understand if you really made a bad decision or you if you were unlucky to be yeah to be frank and and yeah how do you how do you view that 
simply be objective and focus on the facts like i said many times uh, the reason why an investment works out is very different from the original rational rational for doing so and vice versa i think as long as the businesses and the management are executing then just stay put but if we have made a uh, wrong judgment about the business itself about the competitive advantage of the business which we come to know later on i think that is the time to course correct and correct our mistake and you have often talked about the importance of having high quality businesses in in one's portfolio and yeah can you define what's a, what's really a high quality business and how do you find them a high quality business has three key attributes number one a high return on invested capital well above the cost of capital number two some form of a competitive advantage which enables this positive spread between the return on invested capital and cost of capital to persist for a long period of time and number three a large number of reinvestment opportunities within the business at high return on invested capital that is how a business becomes a compounding machine so these are the three key attributes uh, positive free cash flow yield which is the difference between return on capital and the cost of capital some form of a competitive advantage or a moat and number 3 plenty of reinvestment opportunities within the business which makes it a compounding machine and do you do you need some kind of i mean history in order to judge if 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 the business is stable i mean how do you often look at the historical part or or more on the trajectory for the future both so the historical track record gives you the idea about the character of the management and the capital allocation skills of the management and then the investing is at the end of the day all about the future so the future trajectory in terms of the management commentary and strategic goals and objectives and plans for the future these give you a broad idea about where the business is going one i have noticed over the years that many times managements have a wonderful core business in place and that throws up a lot of free cash flow but just in the pursuit of trying to use that cash management just diverts all all of that cash into value destructive low return projects and that is what they should avoid that's why capital allocation skills are so so important i would rather prefer that the management does a stock buyback when the stock is trading below intrinsic value or otherwise uh, pay out the excess money as a dividend rather than wasting money on value destructive low roic projects so this is a skill which is very very important to evaluate the capital allocation that is what drives long term shareholder value creation and wealth creation yeah and related to that in the book you have this great list with aspects of investing that investors are misunderstanding and that you think are overrated and underrated for example that intellect is overrated and that temperament is underrated and in there you write that entry multiple is overrated and that exit multiple is underrated and it's related to this that we just talked about can you expand a bit on that so let me talk about these two uh, points that you mentioned so intellect is overrated and temperament is underrated and temperament matters far more in the long run than your raw intellect and your behavior will matter far more than your fees your asset allocation or your analytical abilities even low cost index funds won't be able to help you if you succumb to behavioral biases and most of the time the real risk is not in the markets but in our behavior the second aspect was about entry multiple being overrated and exit multiple being underrated so if you enter at a high entry multiple and are able to sell after a valuation d rating at a lower exit multiple then you may suffer permanent loss of capital and it is important to understand whether the moat and the earning power of the business is sustainable over the long run and that is the only time when you can assume 
a high exit multiple otherwise be conservative in your assumptions i think it's interesting because many investors are very focused on the entry multiple devaluation when you buy something but they don't think that much about the return on capital and the exit multiple as you say a very very important basically as if the business has got a very durable and strong moat in only in those cases you can assume the uh, exit multiple to be pretty high otherwise you should be conservative in your assumptions and, and assume a lower exit multiple so the entry multiple the earnings growth and the exit multiple ultimately will determine your returns over the long run and now that we are recording this in the beginning of august we are what we consider a bear market and uh, in the book you write that we should make the most of a bull market to earn and make the most of a bear market to learn uh, but you also write that don't let exuberant markets get to your head and don't let pessimistic markets get to your heart which i think is very nicely put so uh, how do you behave now in the bear market what do you prioritize and how do you think behave prudently prudently and prioritize risk management at all times be it a bull market or a bear market and at stella wealth partners india fund i manage risk by emphasizing business and management quality seeking a margin of safety avoiding the use of leverage short selling and derivatives avoiding speculative fads and maintaining a diversified portfolio these are the key aspects which i prioritize at all times for the fund and continuing on, on that a bit at times of distress like we are in now some investors say that they're able to find opportunities and yeah find a lot of opportunities and therefore increase their number of holdings in the portfolios but i've also heard great investors saying the opposite that it's better to to just swing at the really really good opportunities when we are in such a in such an environment what's your view and, and what's your recommendation So as let me uh, talk about this mathematically so as per a study published in the international best seller a random walk on wall street it was shown that as the number of stocks in a portfolio approaches 25 to 30 names you have eliminated eliminated almost all of the unsystematic risk from the portfolio and you have minimized volatility uh, to the maximum extent possible and this is the sweet spot for an active investor seeking to outperform the market anywhere between 20 and 30 stocks at that level the number of companies you need to know thoroughly still manageable and you can still generate a decent amount of alpha and here again i would like to emphasize that this about this concentration versus diversification debate that ultimately depends on the risk appetite and temperament of the individual investor you should stick to the strategy which enables you to go through the ups and downs over a long period of time and stay the course that is the strategy so there is no one single best strategy any strategy which can help you stay the course for the long term that is the best one for the respective investor and uh, traditionally very little literature exists on portfolio sizing and how important it, important is that in, in your opinion and and what determines position sizing in in your portfolio so i size individual allocations in my portfolio according to my evaluation of potential risk with the largest holdings having the lowest likelihood of permanent loss of capital coupled with above average return potential i initiate new positions with a minimum weighting of 3 to 5% and subsequently average upwards if the management executes above my expectations and individual position sizing is important not only for its impact on overall portfolio performance but also for one's mental peace of mind i sell down to my sleeping point if a individual position becomes a discomfortingly large percentage of my portfolio value one should always have bigger weights in businesses with high longevity solid growth prospects 
and disciplined capital allocators. As May West very aptly said, too much of a good thing can be wonderful. <laughs> yeah, and now we're really moving into your current position and work. So tell us a, a bit more about the next phase here after your journey with the joys of compounding. What has happened? During the course of my five years as a portfolio manager of global equity strategy at Summit Global Investments, I realized that India as a market clearly stood out from the rest of the global stock markets in terms of the high growth opportunities which it offered. And I was very excited to bring the India investment opportunity to investors in America. So I quit my job last year in July. And since then, I had been working on implementing the most partner-centric structure for my fund. I've recently established a US-based India fund and it is an investment partnership modeled after the Buffett partnership fee structure from the 1950s. And in your view now, what are the key attributes for long-term success as an emerging fund manager in the investment business? We have many fund managers listening and many aspiring fund managers. So number one, long having long-term minded partners most important because patient capital builds resilience during periods of underperformance. So choose your limited partners or LPs very, very carefully. In my case, also in the last uh, one month while marketing the fund and talking about the fund in, in, with uh, prospective investors, I've said no to almost half of them because they were just too short-term in nature. And the, the short-term investors are the one who create the maximum problem during the market corrections. So you, you want to have a very high quality investor base. So that's one. Number two, do not restrict yourself to a particular investing style or strategy just to appease the investors of your fund. Be flexible and open-minded, ready to adapt to changing conditions. So flexibility and open-mindedness is number two. Number three, a low-cost frugal setup confers longevity to you and your fund. So this is very, very important because in case of funds like ours, which have got zero management fees, it's very, very important to crunch down costs to the maximum extent possible. Number four, investors should look for those fund managers who invest their own personal money in the fund and have skin in the game because then a complete change in the fund manager's attitude and risk management practices follow. And the fund manager focuses more on longevity, sustainability, and durability when his own money is on the line. And fifth and final point, Emerging managers should choose their service providers for the fund after a careful analysis in order to ensure a smooth functioning of the daily operations. So very, this is an area where you don't want to skimp on cost too much. You want to try to get the best value for your money because these service providers, these organizations are the ones which will take care of the fund's annual audit, the client's quarterly statements. And it's very important to choose those service providers which have got past experience of dealing with the strategy and the geography that you're focusing on. So these are the five key success attributes to position for longevity as an emerging fund manager in the investment business. And a follow-up on, on the first one there. How do you judge if those investors, who which in investors are short-term? Because you said you eliminated many of them. Yes. Yeah, so this ties back to how I select clients for my fund and how do I make sure that I'm getting the right people on board. So I try to understand their attitude, to, attitude towards short-term volatility and that time horizon. So recently I met William Green in uh, New York and he was he told me a very interesting insight about a question which Brian Lawrence often asks his clients at the time of onboarding. Brian Lawrence asks his clients, what is this money for? What is the purpose of this investment? What is your goal behind investing this money? And this is a question which I've started uh, incorporating in my questionnaire. And this is what I ask my investors as well, that what is this money for? Because that tells you a lot about what, what is the objective and the long-term goal 
behind the, the investors putting in his money so i think understanding their attitude towards volatility and understanding their purpose of the investment and the time horizon this is how i ensure that i select the right lps for my fund but sometimes it's it's when it's really turbulent that you really can see how people react so how difficult is that for you as a manager to really to really understand and know that the that the clients will will do as they say well if you are not getting any inquiries during a bear market or a market downturn then you know that you have selected the right clients and that i'll get to know very soon my fund will go live on 1st of october right now uh, we were in the capital raising stage a decent amount of capital has been raised and now uh, the money will be deployed into the underlying portfolio on 1st of october so in september the uh, funds will come into the funds bank account and it will be deployed into the underlying portfolio from 1st october and once we experience a bear market or a market correction in future that is when the resilience of the clients will be truly tested but i'm pretty optimistic and confident that i've selected the right clients to come on board for the fund that's great it would be interesting to to hear more and you mentioned a bit about the the fee structure and i mean the the common fee structure as many of you know is for mutual funds to have a management fee and for hedge funds to have a management fee plus an incentive fee uh, over a certain performance threshold and i think how you have structured your fund really shows that that you have learned your own lesson so to speak i mean you have a chapter on on the power of incentives so maybe you can talk about the structure that you have set up in your fund and the uh, the investment partnership is modeled after the original method partnership fee structure and you will rarely find such an equitable fee structure in the investment management industry today as the original buffett partnership buffett used to charge 0% management fee with a 6% cumulative hurdle rate with a high watermark and he used to take 25% performance fee on gains over 6% per annum and what this meant was that in case buffett's investors made 6% returns suppose for the next 10 years then buffett would earn zero he would not earn a single penny for the life of the fund for those 10 years and most of the investment industry today is basically funds uh, which are actually marketing organizations just in the in the disguise of an investment organization but i'm i consider myself more as an investor who happens to be in the fund management business than a fund manager who happens to be in the investment business so i think that is the right right attitude to have i didn't want to become an asset chaser or an asset gatherer and that's why since i've got my own money on the line you mentioned about the power of incentives since i'm investing a large portion of my personal liquid net worth into my fund it aligns my interests completely with that of my partners and focuses me to be more conservative and more prudent and be more risk averse and that that this attitude will help ensure longevity and sustainability for the fund over the long run and in episode 25 of our investing by the books podcast we had richard lawrence from overlook investments uh, and interviewed him and he one of his most important points and lessons from uh, having overlook for over 30 years was this cap on subscription that he had from the start which uh, makes uh, a queue of investors that cannot get into the fund do you have you thought about that or yeah, so um, in my fund as well uh, the fund will hard close at just 50 million of aum and uh, the reason for that is that since i've got my own money on the line and even i want to participate in the high growth small cap uh, companies in india that's why uh, i don't want the fund to become too large because from my past experience as a portfolio manager of a multi billion dollar mutual fund i saw that as the size becomes larger and larger 
then the investment universe tends to shrink the number of high growth opportunities which you have at your disposal just vanishes once you become very large and since i've got zero management fee again this fund structure it is like uh, so well thought out that because i only can earn from performance fee and incentive fee that can only happen when i deliver returns above a 6% cumulative annual hurdle rate so i have to focus on maximizing returns as a result and that's why I, I, it's in my best interest as well just like the investors best interest to keep the fund size small and focus on maximizing returns so this is how uh, you want to just structure the fund so as to make use of the power of incentives in a positive manner that's what i focus so basically when i was setting up this fund structure for the last one year i was constantly asking myself if i was an investor in a fund or a client of a fund what would i love to see in a fund so that is how i just began structuring the fund so let's dig into the investments that you will specialize in and maybe of course have specialized in for yourself for, for a long time uh, with your fund you focus on the indian market and why should global investor want exposure to the indian stock market let me talk about the big picture first so charlie munger has often said that if you want to fish you want to go where the fish are and in my view like i said earlier based on my 5 years of uh, tracking global stock markets india was the only stock market which, which clearly stood out from the rest of the global stock markets in terms of the fundamentals and the number of high growth opportunities which it provided here i would like to add a very important historical fact that when you look at all the major stock markets of the world you look at us you look at china you look at japan whenever those economies doubled their gdp from 2.5 trillion to 5 trillion their stock markets did not just double their stock markets tripled or even quadrupled the fastest pace of wealth creation in any stock major stock market takes place when the country's gdp doubles from 2.5 trillion to 5 trillion and the reason for that is that as a nation transitions from a low income per capita country to a high or middle income per capita country the basic spending on items like food remains broadly constant but the spending on discretionary branded goods and financialization of savings those experience an exponential jump and this is the opportunity which india offers to investors in the world today today india is standing at 2.8 trillion dollars of gdp and as india transitions from 2.8 trillion to 5 trillion i anticipate history to repeat and the fast very fastest pace of wealth creation to occur in the indian stock market so that's a first big macro picture second it took india 60 years to reach its first trillion dollars of gdp but it took india just 7 years to reach the next trillion dollars of gdp and the subsequent trillions of dollars of gdp are expected to be achieved in much faster succession and if we simply assume the market cap to gdp to approximate one over time one can just envisage the kind of wealth creation that lies in store for investors in great indian businesses trillions of dollars and the nation's best managed companies with proven track records of execution and ability to scale up their operations will capture the bulk of this upcoming wealth creation boom in the indian stock market number 3 what are the drivers of gdp growth for any country it is only two things right estimated estimated change in the working age population and productivity growth and over the next 30 years so there was a recent study published by collaborative fund research and in that they showed that between 2021 and 2050 apart from nigeria which is a very small country and the us which will keep benefiting from favorable immigration trends india is the only major economy in the world which will have a 20% positive change in the working age population 
So that gives credence to the long-term India GDP story. During the same period of 30 years, countries like South Korea, Spain, Germany, China, Russia, and Italy will face a sharp fall in their working age population. And they may face the same problems which Japan has been facing for the last few decades, that of an aging population. So this again here, in terms of demographics, India stands out. Finally, and most importantly, as investors, we want to basically, we always try to get in on the ground floor and take the elevator all the way up to the top floor and, and then exit, right? So you want to ideally enter at the bottom of an economic cycle and then ride it all the way up to the next subsequent up cycle and the upturn, right? So between FI10 and FI20, for 10 years, the Indian economy was in a downturn because of a series of tough economic reforms put in place by the government there. So the corporate profit to GDP ratio was very depressed and the banking, se- the banking sector also was cleaning up its balance sheet. And the co- corporate sector in India was also deleveraging. And as you know, deleveraging is a very painful exercise. But today, corporate profit to GDP is, a, is at a decadal low and just on the recovery path. The banking se- system uh, balance sheet has been cleaned up. And corporate India has also deleveraged, deleveraged its balance sheet and now ready for a fresh cycle of CAPEX. And what, are, what is the key driver of GDP growth in any country? The f- most important driver, in addition to population growth and productivity growth, is banking system credit. Now the Indian banking system is uh, all set to revive. And corporate India, corporate India has got a very strong balance sheet now, and they will also undertake CAPEX. And history tells us that uh, for a durable and long-term bull market to take place, you want to have a f- CAPEX cycle. So banking si- system credit fresh capex cycle these will inter- these will help boost the return ratios of the companies in the market and as return ratios improve you will get valuation re-rating coupled with earnings growth and that is how you generate outsized returns so this is the big picture view for india and that is why today is a great time to have some build start building some allocation to indian equities in one's portfolio maybe this follow up question is a bit difficult but um, I mean, from from my experience, looking at, um, I mean, I, I wouldn't categorize India as an emerging market. I think it's uh, quite mature at this stage. But um, growing markets uh, have not always produced returns that are that are have been good for investors. And I mean, all growth is not uh, is not valuable. And as we have seen, more mature markets such such as the U.S. has outperformed most other markets over time. Why do you think? Uh, growth in the Indian economy will translate into returns for investors? At the end of the day, investing is a bottom-up stopping activity. Even uh, during my uh, stint as the portfolio manager when I was working in the US, I had the option to invest in the US markets as well. But I invested all of my personal money in the Indian stock markets. That is the stock market where I've created the bulk of my personal wealth. And having seen uh, the kind of exponential opportunities available there, this is where my conviction lies and that is why I I left my uh, well-paying job as a portfolio manager last year and ventured out on investing in the Indian market. At the end of the day, see, investing in any market in the world is driven by only one single principle called the power law. So as per a study uh, published by the University of Arizona and Professor Bidenberg, he showed that between 1926 to 2016, only 4% of the listed stocks in US accounted for 100% of the net wealth creation. Same phenomenon will, has, is taking place in India as well. 
there are a handful of companies uh, from just a few sectors are driving the bulk of the wealth creation and the market cap addition this fact phenomena holds true in every single stock market be it us or be it the european markets or be it the indian markets ultimately it's all about bottom up stock picking so when you get a tailwind from the macro that is just an added bonus but when i talk talk about exposure to india i'm not talking about exposure to the india index fund or the india nifty and the sensex i'm talking about bottom up individual businesses at reasonable valuations so in the search of those gems how do you, how is your process for re- researching companies listed in india because you're based in in salt lake city but will you travel to india a lot or how will you conduct your research uh, this is a common question which i get um, asked quite a lot that how am i able to evaluate the quality of managements in india while living and working in the us and for that i refer to my comprehensive corporate governance checklist i follow a very rigorous diligence process to avoid errors of commission so i look for any frequent change in auditors any qualifications raised by auditors any abnormal auditor fees is the auditor fees growing faster than revenue growth does the company have a long list of unaudited foreign subsidiaries does the promoter have any political affiliations or criminal proceedings against him has the company been been subjected to any income tax department raids in the past or any cases of debarment by the capital markets regulator what is the history of churn or attrition in the c suite is the key management personal drawing excessive excessive remuneration or blowing large sums of minority shareholder money on building a lavish corporate office is the company diluting its equity a lot is the promoter holding coming down is the promoter pledging his shares has the company shared wealth with uh, shareholders in the past through dividends and share buybacks is the company take, company taking a loan from the promoter at an above average interest rate above market interest rate because that shows a conflict of interest are the related party transactions very significant insights what is the view of the current and ex employees about the company you can get this information on websites like glassdoor what are the views of the industry experts and reputed investors about the company is the promoter running a similar business as the listed entity in his privately held company because that may also lead to a conflict of interest also check whether the company's revenue recognition policies are very aggressive also check the accounting quality so when i say checking accounting quality it refers to checking things like volatility and depreciation rate because the depreciation policy may be modified by the management to manipulate earnings also check whether the company is writing off operating expenses against the reserves and surpluses on the balance sheet instead of routing it through the profit and loss or the income statement as inflating profit check for the working capital intensity of the business and check for the trend in the accounts receivables and inventory days check check how much of the historical net income has been converted to cash flow from operations because that is what will fund your investing and financing activities also check for any abnormally high margins versus peers in a commodity industry because it's very unusual for a commodity company to be earning 30% margins while its peers in the same industry are earning 10% margins check for any excessive write offs of assets in the past check for any capitalization of operating expenses because some managements tend to capitalize operating expenses to smoothen to smoothen out earnings check for trends in the debt to equity ratio any cases of defaults in statutory payments any high contingent liabilities or any off balance sheet obligations for example has the company given a guarantee on the debt of its group companies through the listed entity now some people may ask what is the need to do so much hard work who looks at balance sheet and cash flow in a bull market let alone the footnotes to the accounts and my response to them always is that when you're in a position of 
such high fiduciary responsibility and managing other people's heart and savings, then you owe it to them to reciprocate their trust in you. And this entire checklist which I shared with you, this is how I check for management red flags and the corporate governance issues with any company in India before I make an investment for myself or my clients. And I think your answer is quite aligned with uh, a former guest on the show, Rajiv Agrawal. And I mean, he's also investing in India and he said that uh, management is actually more important for him than than the business when investing in India. And we heard the same answer from, from Richard Lawrence. And I think the list you mentioned, a, a lot of those questions was related to to actually corporate governance uh, issues. And how does that differ from from your experience when in investing in in the US have you have you like not used all of those checks for for US companies or yeah can you expand on that a bit so for uh, many of the items which i mentioned uh, for many of them you don't actually need to do a lot of them in the US markets because the reporting standards are much more better here but when you're investing in an, in an emerging market or in a country where you know that uh, there are some, there can be some corporate governance governance issues it's always good to Uh, take some precaution and do the extra work and that is what i just prefer to do in when investing in the indian market and as long as you can invest in good clean companies with a long runway for growth and buy them at reasonable prices you will do very very well and as i understand it your firm stellar wealth partners is specialized in or will specialize in, in identifying emerging and fundamentally strong businesses based on on two investment themes so can you tell us a bit more about these So Stellarwell Partners are specialized in investing in emerging and fundamentally strong businesses in India based on two key themes, varying perception and long-term structural trends. Varying perception refers to situations where you get ROC expansion coupled with earnings growth, you get valuation re-rating and you end up with multi-baggers. And varying perception comes from having a differentiated view on the short to medium-term trajectory of the business. And there are multiple triggers for varying perception including product mix change in a high margin category, operating leverage, which may come from having unutilized capacity just at the beginning of an industry up cycle, industry cycle shift. So for example, the residential real estate cycle in India has turned around for the better after almost a decade since the middle of 2020. Regulatory change is another source for varying perception. So since uh, early 2020, the government of India has been putting a heavy emphasis on ethanol blending and to reduce its uh, dependency on oil imports and that has led to many multi-baggers coming from the sugar mills and distillery space. Deleveraging is another source for weight perception because as debt goes down, interest cost goes down, net profit goes up, market gap goes up. Improvement in asset turns is another source. So you can get this information from management on the conference calls and ask them how much is the expected turnover on the new fixed asset capacity. And there are two sources for ROC expansion margin improvement and improvement in asset turns. And between the two, I prefer the latter because high margins tend to attract competition. Apart apart from all these, uh, corporate actions like spin-offs, merger arbitrage, promoter management change, divestiture of loss-making or non-core business segments, these are also various sources for varying perception. Now let's talk about long-term structural trends. Long-term structural trends are found in industries with a very favorable structure. They're organized like a monopoly or a duopoly or an oligopoly at best. And they're experiencing some form of an industry tailwind. They're characterized by consistency and predictability of cash flows. And they have a long runway for growth ahead. So you have high visibility for many years. They are also characterized by value migration. So in India, for the last two decades, we have had a value migration taking place from 
offline to online, public to private, unorganized to organized. And there are multiple structural growth plays in India, namely contract development and manufacturing organizations, contract research and manufacturing services, custom synthesis and manufacturing, because low-cost manufacturing is in, is in India's DNA. Specialty chemicals with critical application, affordable housing, fintech, music streaming, financialization of savings, digital transformation, and cloud computing. These are the various long-term structural growth plays which we look at for our India Fund. And Stellar Wealth Partners India Fund is a blend of varying perception and long-term structural trends. And we know that you are a voracious reader, so... We have to talk a bit about books, and this is a book podcast. And in the joys of a compounding, another great quote that I really, really like is that good books are the most undervalued asset class. The right ideas can be worth millions, if not billions of dollars over time. So we are curious to hear more about your reading habits. Between 2016 and 2020, my reading intensity was very high. I, I read around 250 books in those five years or one book per week. And having read and learned the core principles from the best books, I now spend more time rereading my favorite books rather than reading new books. And if you could retain only three books from your entire book collection, which books would those be? So let me share three investing books and three non-investing books for your listeners. So for investing books, I would highly recommend Terry Smith's Investing for Growth, which taught me how to invest in high-quality businesses for the long term. Mastering the Market Cycle by Howard Marks teaches us how teaches us how to position our portfolio to generate alpha during different market environments. And You Can Be a Stock Market Genius by Joel Greenblatt taught me how to invest in various special situations. So these are the these are the three investing books which I would highly recommend. For non-investing books, I would highly recommend More Than You Know by Michael Morbison and Seeking Wisdom by Peter Bevelin, two great books on multidisciplinary thinking. And the third and final book which I would highly recommend is All I Want to Know is Where I'm Going to Die So That I Will Never Go There. Again by Peter Bevelin, a great book on the principle of inversion. Great advice. And and you said you reread many of the books right now. Can you tell us a bit more, like, is there a specific title that you reread or a specific type of books that you're rereading or, and why are you rereading more than reading new books? So 80% of the reading time is spent in rereading and 20% is spent in reading uh, new books. Always read, reread and reflect on your learnings from the books you read, because when you read them more than once, you will notice that with the passage of time, because of accumulated personal and vicarious experience, you are able to obtain additional and new insights from the same book. In other words, you start developing pattern recognition and that is the key to successful investing. So uh, recently I was rereading Phil Fisher's uh, classic Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits and I got I was able to obtain some more, further new insights on the importance of culture and of management having a long-term mindset and investing for the future while depressing the short-term profitability so just keep rereading the classics on a regular basis across a range of fields, be it health, nutrition, investing, philosophy, psychology, history. And over time, you'll start getting new insights from the same book. And I think readers can also prosper from reading your book because I think you highlight many of those insights from, from those classics in your wide-ranging range, great book. So thanks a lot for that. And, and thank you, Gautam, for a very interesting conversation about you and the joys of compounding. Do you have something more you want to add before we finish up? 
So people who want to learn uh, more about the book, uh, they can visit thejoysofcompounding.com. And uh, if you want to learn more about the fund, you can visit stellarwealthindia.com. I can also be reached on LinkedIn and Twitter. I wish all the listeners all the very best. Keep on learning, keep on growing, and let's keep helping each other grow and prosper in life. It will be interesting to to follow your journey, and, and we will do so, and and hope our listeners will, will too. Thank you, Gautam. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.